Hey, everybody, welcome to the green room for Disrupt TV. So we're gonna do a quick introductions. But if you notice, Vala Afshar is not here. We got a special guest. So Larry, welcome. Hey. Larry is now doing Constellation Research. So where are you coming in from, Larry, today? Uh, well, my 65-inch TV behind me is in New York, but I'm in Yardley, Pennsylvania. So, All right, very, very cool. So, the art of the so green welcome, trail. everybody. So we're going to do some quick reverse introductions. We'll start with Phil, go to Sue, then Paul. Phil, where are you coming in from? What are we talking about today? Hey, Ray, thanks for having me. Phil Simon, Gilbert, Arizona. We are talking about my new book, The Nine, The Tectonic Forces, Reshaping the Workplace. Perfect timing for that. Sue, where are you coming in from? What are we talking about today? Hey, good afternoon, Ray. I'm coming to you from Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And I'm going to talk about how data is disrupting, disrupting and transforming the traditional and outdated business practices and contingent workforce and hopefully blow everybody away with a breathtaking ROI. Ah, very, very cool. All right. We're going to be looking at this. This is the year of exponential efficiency. And Paul, what is happening, man? So where are you coming in from? I'm here on the Upper West Side of uh, Manhattan, Ray, and uh, I'm going to be talking about uh, my new book coming out next Tuesday, The Power of Money, and it's third time lucky on your show, so I'm really delighted to be here. Excellent. We're getting some the sneak preview before the book launch, so we love that. So, all right, well, we're going to pack it back to our we're going to pack pass it back to our producer, L. Let us go. Uh, yeah, let us know when to take off. All right, three, two, one. <laughs> everybody welcome to disrupt tv this is episode number 321 and we're super excited to have you here as you notice Vala afshar is on vacation i'm ray wong ceo of constellation research and more importantly here as your co-host on disrupt tv but i wanted to introduce you to someone new so welcome larry dingen he's most recently salonis's media's editor-in-chief where he sat at the intersection of media and marketing and he's also the former editor-in-chief of zdnet where he's covered the technology industry and transformation trends for more than two decades, publishing articles in CNET Knowledge uh, at Wharton, WallStreetWeek.com, Interactive Week, The New York Times, and Financial Planning Magazine. So he's also an adjunct professor at Temple University, and he is our co-host today. And I'm super excited because he just joined us May 1st. Welcome to Disrupt TV, Larry. From first day to right here. So yeah, <laughs> happy to be here gonna be fun. Well, we're super excited to have Larry. And of course, you'll see us in our CR insights as he's putting that together. And you'll notice on our blog page. I mean, he's only been here, but there's like 20 some articles on there already, probably 11, but it's a lot. So but more importantly, it's not about us. It's about our amazing guests. And today we have Paul Sheard, the author of The Power of Money and former vice chairman of S&P Global. So Paul is an Australian American economist, former vice chairman, S&P Global, senior fellow and research fellow at Harvard Kennedy School, also known for his ability to see the forest and the trees. So he's basically challenged conventional wisdom. He speaks regular conferences around the world. I see him at Davos. I see him in other conferences that are super hot, like really geek economic conferences. And of course, um, he's got the power of money, which is coming out um, next Monday, I believe. So pretty soon, published by Matt Holt Books and an imprint of Pen Pella Books. So really excited to have you here. You've been on the show three times. You're not a newcomer to the show and always some amazing conversation. Welcome to the show. Welcome to Disrupt TV, Paul Sherd. Thanks very much, Ray. It's always a great pleasure to be here. A great thing to do on Friday afternoon, morning, depending on your... Oh, very cool. So Larry, first question, all yours. 
Sure. So, so Paul, can you tell us what your book's about and, and kind of, you know, how, how we should view the forest and the trees right now, since it's a little bit of a mess out there. Right. Yeah. Thanks for it. So it's called the money um, how governments and banks and help us all prosper. Wrote the being a chief economist uh, for the best part of uh, a quarter of a century, uh, I, I realized as I talked around the world was that uh, even though money is completely obviously at the center of the music to the economy, misunderstanding sort of how money work came from, what monetary policy, monetary and fiscal policy, what role they played, what the heck is quantitative easing. Um, I boots uh, uh, Harvard and thought I'll write a book. But what I wanted to do was explain. Um, I think I think your audio is breaking up. Is oh. that right? Uh, yeah, it's it's very choppy. Right? Is it choppy for you? Actually, I've just lost. I actually, raise on mute. Right, I've lost. <laughs> So um, if you can actually refresh real quick, um, Paul, and then what we'll do is like, we'll bring you back in. So, and then Larry, we'll, we'll continue from here. So if you can hit refresh in your browser and hopefully it should come in clearer. So let's see how you do. Okay, let me, let me try it. All right, as he's doing that, right, one of the interesting things about this book is really the notion of what value exchange looks like. And, you know, when you're seeing that value exchange happen, it's it's un, it's, it's it's huge, right? I mean, really, the concept of money has been with us for so long. And, and Paul, as you were saying, go ahead. You look much better and sell much better. So go ahead. Okay, I hope so. I'm sorry about that. I don't know what uh, what went wrong there in the connect. But, yeah, so um, I really want to write a, a book about sort of where it comes from, how the, the monetary economy works uh, for sort of the um, not just the sort of policy wonks or the economists out there. Wow. Okay. So this is not the geeky book economists are looking at. This is a book for everybody else to understand what money is about and why that's important. Um, so let, so, so what is money, right? Like why, why do we have this notion of money? Right. I mean, I mean, do, do we really conceptually get value exchange? So. Yeah. So the very, the very first words in the book um, are I think taken from cash, which is money makes the world go round. If you remember that line and you know, one way of, and I really do believe this, that, you know, without money and the monetary economy, um, you know, the, the, what economists call the real economy, the economy where, you know, goods and services are produced and consumed, that really wouldn't, wouldn't be able to work. Now, economists typically have sort of defined money more in terms of its functions. They talk about money being a unit of account, like a standard, a measure, a medium of exchange, the thing that we use... Uh, you know, to get around having to engage barter all the time. And also as a store of value, it's a way of transferring purchasing power through time. So it's money represents purchasing power and it gives you that purchasing power to the output that society is collectively using. So in terms of, I guess, I, I'm increasingly, you know, looking at the intersection of money and trust um, you know, this is a U.S. centric view. So, you know, I, I do wonder, like, what happens if we lose reserve currency status? Um, I guess what what does that intersection of trust and money look like? Yeah, it's a great point, Larry, because, you know, again, if you if you pick up any book on money, it will probably tell you that money ultimately depends on trust and the money system that we have today um, you might call it the sort of the sovereign mon monetary system. Uh, money is, if not issued by governments, at least kind of uh, validated by governments. And you know, it, at the end of the day, when you pass, uh, you know, have a twenty-dollar bill here, I like to hold up uh, Andrew Jackson. Um, <laughs> you, you pass this stuff most of it these days, of course, is in digital form. But this $20 bill, I mean, it probably produced a, a cost a cent or two to produce. Um, so it doesn't have the intrinsic value, but uh, it is accepted as a stable value. And that's trust. Trust that when you come to give this dollar bill or digital version to some payment, they will accept it. But the point, um, you know, a lot of talk about is, is trust that the government won't abuse its 
privileged access to a kind of printing press, a metaphorical printing press, where it could flood the economy with too much money, too much purchasing power, and debase its value. So yes, Larry, trust is really intrinsic, and there are various institutions have developed around central banks, independence, and so on, which try to sort of secure that trust. But you know, money is very controversial, and you know, central banks, monetary authorities, fiscal authorities, um, they're a constant target of criticism. And one of the things I wanted to do was just to be more positive and upbeat about money. Yes, the criticisms can be leveled, a lot of issues out there to be dealt with, but at the end of the day, money and the monetary system does underpin our collective prosperity. You know, Paul, you actually mentioned something really important here, right? Governments not abusing the printing powers of the press, right? Just, I don't know, 12 months ago, we were like, oh, modern money, monetary theory, MMT, it's the future, right? Print as much as you want. There's no such thing as inflation. And now inflation's come roaring back. How did that happen? How do we get here? Well, we've really been living right through one of the most kind of you know, head-turning episodes of two or three years, well, I guess it's now three, four years, in modern economic history. That is, we started off with that massive uh, COVID. And, uh, you know, economic use word shock, things that sort of push the economy away from its natural balance. And the initial phase of COVID, if you remember, was of economic devastation. Um, GDP in the U.S., for example, just in two quarters, fell by yeah. 10%. That's an enormous drop. And so the government spigots ran the printing presses. Central banks did all of this quantitative easing. So in other words, they applied a lot of stimulus to the economy. Now, the good news is that it worked and demand in the economy bounced very quickly, really a V-shaped recovery. Fantastic. We want that to happen. However, where big error, a took their eye off the ball was on the supply side of the economy. Um, you probably heard about the great resignation. COVID to the supply capacity of the economy, particularly uh, the labor market. And if you throw a lot of demand at limited supply, you will get innovation. And that's what happened. Wow. So when you look at the, you know, the bank failures that are going on now, um, can you give us a little historical context? Like this, this does not feel nearly as bad as 2008. Uh, then again, I could be delusional. Um, I guess where does the current banking crisis stack mm. up with you know 2008 and any time before? And savings right. loan. Right. No. Great, great, great question. And you know, well, you know, to lay my cards on the table, I was the chief economist at Lehman Brothers uh, during the crisis of 2008 had a first row seat on what was happening. I certainly don't think it's like that, and I certainly hope it's not. But um, just to continue the storyline here, we had that inflation going to 8%, 9% in the US. This was not supposed to happen. And so the Fed got on the case and started hiking interest rates, starting to shrink its balance sheet. And we had now 500 basis points, 10 rate hikes. Latest one came this week on Wednesday. And now that the overnight money market rate is about 5% or so, 14 months ago, it was zero. So you've one had the sharpest and quickest increases in interest rates in recorded history by the Fed, aimed at quelling inflation. But, you know, Warren Buffett made a very famous uh, quip some time ago. He said, the time goes out, that's when you see who was naked. And when you have this kind of interest rate shock thrown at the economy, there will be some weak links in the chain. And so for whatever reason, you know, these some of these banks have um, you know, gone up. The other thing here, and I have a chapter on this in my book, Chapter 6, just to plug it a little bit, um, which is I talk about banking crises. And the thing to understand here is, whether we like it or not, um, the, the potential, at least, to have a bank run or a financial crisis is really intrinsic to the nature of the economy and the financial system. You, you know, there's always a risk, and, and simply that's the case because the, the banking system is, uh, if you like, has claims on illiquid assets, factories, uh, infrastructure, human capital, you know, technological e, stuff like that. On the other hand, it also provides to the people who hold bank deposits in particular and other claims. And one is more liquid than the other. 
And so when you get into these moments of stress, people look for the weakest bang and say, you know what, I need to have money that shift it somewhere. And everybody does that, which they will tend to do. Uh, you get a bank run that's difficult and fills that liquidity hole and go. Yeah, and this goes back to the point, right? You know, when you fill that liquidity holes, I mean, Larry was mentioning the fact that, you know, I mean, there's a level of trust that's required, right? I mean, that social media bank run was, was pretty wild to see as depositors had such much, I mean, the ability to actually move money so quickly in this world. I mean, it completely changes changes the dynamic. Now, what do you do, for example, when, you know, there's no faith in the government or there's no faith uh, in the backing of a government? Like, you know, and, and I, I'm, let's use the euro as example, which you talk about in your book. I mean, it's a currency without a government, right? I mean, can that exist in this kind of environment where we well, see so much volatility, uh, lack of trust in institutions and, you know, massive like hiking of interest rates, which allow people to actually consider where they're going to get their alpha? Yeah, well, you mentioned the euro, um, Ray, and um, yeah, that, that is unique because it's it's not quite without a government, but it's it's sort of it has a super state behind it, the European Union, or at least the the twenty member states of the uh, European Union that have adopted the euro as a currency. So it is it is an odd thing. It's kind of like these countries have a single central bank and a single monetary policy. They've combined yep. their sovereignty on that front. But when it comes to fiscal policy, which I call the other side of the coin, the other side of the sovereign coin, they're acting as separate actors on the fiscal side. And I don't think ultimately that kind of configuration uh, is sustainable for reasons that I put forth in the book. So I think over time, you know, it could be 10, 20 years, the euro will have to move to being a fully fledged currency of a of a government, in other words, the European Union will have to become something more like the United States of Europe. Uh, otherwise, I think pressures on the euro to start to break up, um, I think, will become intense at some point. We, we did see this earlier, back in 2012, then ECB President Mario Draghi kind of saved the euro with a few words, basically saying, trust me, I won't let it break up. And that has worked for the last decade or so, but it's not a permanent uh, get out of jail free card. Does the, I mean, speaking of the euro and how it's, you know, doesn't have a government, I guess, what's the role of a decentralized currency, you know, cryptocurrency, that kind of thing? Like, mm. can, a, can a monetary system exist that's decentralized? Well, so I do have a chapter on, on cryptocurrencies. You, you can't write a book about money these days without you know, having a chapter on cryptocurrencies. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, so... Um, this is a great show to be talking about that. The way I see cryptocurrencies, I mean, the first point I would make, Larry, is that, you know, the, the blockchain, Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies, this is another example of incredible human ingenuity and technological innovation. We're living in this, this age of unbelievable technological progress. Sometimes people say, well, where is it? We don't see it in rising living standards or productivity. You know, I, I think we do. We just don't kind of appreciate it as a kind of ratchet effect at work things for granted. So that's an amazing innovation. Question, I think, is will it disrupt or displace the traditional sort of legacy monetary and fiscal system? And I don't think it will, but I think it's being a very positive disruptive force. I think cryptocurrencies will have a some permanent place in the sort of asset ecosystem, you know, a little bit like digital gold. I think they will play important roles in payment systems. But what they've really done in the central banking world is disrupt central banks. Every central bank in the world virtually now is looking at central bank digital currencies. They're saying to themselves, how can we go more digital? How can we adopt blockchain technology um, in order to issue digital currency? And of course, most money is digital, but digital in a more crypto sense, tokenized money, blockchain-based money. And I think over the next five to 10 years, we're going to see some pretty uh, interesting innovations coming out of central banks, which had their genesis in, you know, Satoshi Nakamoto 2008 uh, and the big Bitcoin phenomenon. 
Well, hey, speaking about that real quick, I mean, we, we see some massive Uber forces when we do trending, right? U.S. versus China, right? Hegemony of the dollar, right? BRICS versus G7. Um, I mean, do cryptocurrencies ultimately take away the power of the dollar as the world's reserve currency or will it reinforce its place as the dollar? Where do you see that? Yeah, I think, well, the, the verdict is still out there, but I think just on the, the issue of the, the reserve currency status of the dollar, um, you know, I do think that technology can undermine that to a certain extent. I mean, we've had the whole, you know, development of stable coins, for example, uh, and other sort of international means of, of payment. Um, it's a little bit curious that in this day and age, with so much technological innovation, so much, you know, artificial intelligence, uh, very sophisticated foreign exchange rates, that we need this old-fashioned convention of a reserve currency, as if everybody has to sort of use one currency in international trade and finance. So I think it's sort of a little bit of a an idea that's you know seen its best days. But on top of that, Ray, you know, I do have a, some references in the book to the concerns about the way in which U.S. you know policymakers, particularly on the geopolitical side, are weaponizing the dollar. And this is a very dangerous thing to do. If you want your currency, and I'll get back to the point that Larry mentioned about trust. If you yeah. want currency to be trusted as a valuable uh, store of value and means of, of payment, then you can't abuse your exorbitant privilege, this famous uh, phrase no. that the French uh, finance minister coined in the 1960s. So I think you know, I've been arguing for policymakers need to take a deep breath, resist the temptation to weaponize the dollar. If they want it to be a reserve currency, they need to make sure that it, it exists as a kind of global public good. And that means you've got to take your hands off it. Yep. We, that is mutually exclusive and, and very, very important point. We're here with Paul Sheard, author of The Power of Money. Um, he's former vice chairman of SMP Global, but more importantly, catch his book on May 9th, um, especially where books are sold. And congratulations, Paul, on your new book and look forward to going deeper into this. Thanks very much, Ray. Thanks, Larry. Thanks. Wow. <laughs> yeah, what a way to kick off. Thing, the whole thing had me wondering whether crypto is an interim step to something else that'll disrupt money, or it is the I don't know if it is a disruptor or something on the way to something else. I know. Speaking about disruptors, we've got Sue Watts, president of Sapiens Analytics. And so hey, thanks for joining us here. We got Sue. She um president of operations reporting to Brad Killinger. She's also someone that I've known for a while from Capgemini, uh, and she's an effective builder of high-performance teams, whether it's an ITO, BPO, network, telephony, apps, development, maintenance, um, something that she's been doing all around the world. So, But more importantly, you've been spending time in finance, accounting, delivery operations, transformation, almost every piece of the business, uh, and more importantly, both in public and private companies. So, But before that, I think I met you at Capgemini or Capgemini, uh, depending who you pronounce that. And more importantly, you've been also an active board member at HCI Group, a publicly traded property and casualty insurance company with an emerging insure tech division. And uh, yeah, you're the head of the Gov governance committee and member of the audit committee. So um, you've had great career experiences from Xerox to other areas, including Orange Business Services and Unisys back in the day. Amazing. So, but hey, more importantly, thank you so much for joining us here. Um, uh, we're really excited to have you and hear about what's new and what's happening in terms of, you know, your new position and, of course, what's happening in your organization. So welcome to the show, Sue Watts. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's a, it's a wonderful opportunity to share the Sapiens message and talk about the impact that we're making in the market. Um, you know, the, this uh, workplace today is um, quite dynamic. It's hard for companies to get their hands on. Uh, to really know how to manage their workplace, be it work from home, work from the office. And, you know, we think at Sapiens, we know at Sapiens that we've got an interesting um, proposition for companies that's really going to disrupt the marketplace and have a big impact on contingent work and how it's, um, how it's accounted for and managed going forward. Yeah, I know. And we really want to hear from your client's point of view what they are seeing. So, Larry, yeah. off to you. I guess, could you walk us through sort of the workplace analytics and what Sapiens does? Yeah, I'd love to. And by the way, the segment on the power of money was really timely because Sapiens is an advocate of the power of money. Um, we're very much in favor of having people keep their money uh, versus needlessly spending it uh, and not getting value in return and the value that they deserve. So 
You know, when we look at the marketplace, we see what almost every other company is seeing, that it's very, very difficult to know what's happening in the workplace these days. There's um, a high percentage of workforce that's still working from home. You hear things, and it you know, brought up in the other segment around quiet quitting. There's um, you know, people who are resting the vest. There's all kinds of you know, adjectives that are, that are describing you know, what people are doing in the workplace. And there's really no company that's figured it out at this point in terms of you know, what are the right um, you know, um, combinations of work from home, work from office, uh, days of the week to be working, hours of the days to be working, how much flexibility should exist in, in that world. And, and that level of complexity you know, has been um, you know, around ever since the pandemic. And as companies are trying to establish policies coming out of the pandemic, we're finding that you know, workers are voicing their opinion as to whether or not they even want to follow a company policy after it's been after it's been published. So that creates a tremendous amount of uncertainty, both for the worker as as well as for the company. Uh, and we believe, you know, at Sapiens, that there's a need for you know data in regard to what's truly happening in the workplace as a way to create the transparency and and the clarity. Um, so that both the employee and the employer can coexist in a, you know, in a new modern workplace. You know, one of the things we've been talking about is this is the year of exponential efficiency, right? And everybody is trying to find an opportunity to kind of improve what's going on. And one of the measures that, you know, we typically hear about is really how, how engaged is that workforce, right? And that's engagement is a big part of, you know, finding efficiency, finding purpose, having people collaborate more. Um, how do you measure something so fuzzy like, you know, employee engagement? I mean, like to me, it's like one of the fuzziest measures you could probably look at. Maybe I'm wrong and you guys have a way to quantify it. So No, it's, it's a great question. And, and I want to kind of pivot just a little bit because there's, a, there's fundamentals, you know, that are happening in the workplace around productivity and outcome and measuring outcome and ensuring that the right, um, you know, uh, contributions are being made by the workforce in order to get the value of the huge investments that companies are making in human capital. And the other side of the equation is is in dealing with a contingent workforce. So in a contingent workforce environment, your your yep. company is is bringing on resources that they're that they're you know um, sourcing through other channels you know into their workplace. And then there's a mechanism that exists you know through the finance and accounting organization within within the business tied to operations, where you know as that work is being completed, time cards show up, time cards get approved, and then the supplier gets paid for the services that they've rendered. So, you know, in that uh, equation, what, what we found in, inside Sapiens is that you know, knowing what's truly happening in the workplace, and, 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 if, and if everybody agrees with the premise that the workplace is very complicated right now, it's hard to know what people are doing, are they even working, are they quite quitting, et cetera, et cetera, you know, no one business has it really figured out. If you're entrusting part of your work to a, you know, to a supplier, and that supplier is then telling you you know, through a time card, what people, you know, what time should be actually invoiced and paid, you know, that's a really, um, you know, difficult place for companies to be in. Um, and by difficult, what I mean is, you know, if, if I'm running my business and I'm struggling to know what my people are doing, in a contingent workforce environment, what I'm doing is I'm giving the responsibility to the supplying company to tell me how much they should bill me for the services their contingent workers are doing. So if I don't know what my own people are doing, what's the likelihood my supplier knows what their people are doing? And then what's the likelihood that invoice is gonna be accurate? Or what's the likelihood that time card's gonna be accurate? And we would tell you, you know, at Sapiens that, you know, we have a way to give you the answer to that question, which enables you to better manage and, you know, the power of your money. If we, if we follow, you know, from the predecessor on the show, right? the power of how you spend your money is critical to the profitability of the operation. It's critical to, you know, to, to, you know, to getting value for the money that you're actually prepared to spend. So what, what data sources do you, what, like, what data sources should companies tap in to sort of try to get a handle on that? I mean, are they looking at a specific process or an application or, I mean, like you said, it's tough to track your own employees and then you have a, you know, supplier base of workers. Like, like what's the, I guess what's the spaghetti model underneath of all this thing? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question, Larry. So from you know what Sapiens does is we you know we collect that data on behalf of our clients and we do it with a very lightweight collector. 
that information is automatic. The, the metadata of what people are doing is automatically collected and accumulated and then turned into structured data that companies will know, know exactly what's happening within the work within the workplace. Uh, you know, down to the individual level, what they're doing, you know, hour by hour, you know, minute by minute, segment by segment within a workday. So what it's doing is it's taking a, you know, a self-reported time process that exists today. And Larry, you just mentioned that's really complicated. It's complicated because leaders don't know how to verify those, those time cards. And it's complicated because the individual worker who perhaps is, you know, engaging in quiet quitting or resting to vest to retire or moonlighting or otherwise, are going to be the last people you would expect that would you know naturally raise your hand and say, "Yoo-hoo, please don't bill for my time because I didn't work it yesterday. I was you know consciously quiet quitting, or I've got a second job, or whatever." So you've got this um, you know this this ecosystem that exists today and how business runs now, where you know the individual worker is relied upon to you know to, to declare what you know what time they've worked their leadership within the supply side can't verify that the time card goes over to their customer a manager on the customer side then has to determine was it time worked or wasn't it they're not equipped and capable of of doing that consistently and the result is you know default accept the time which then the supplier gets paid in an automated you know data capture collection methodology you know you have absolute certainty as to what actually took place in the work time in the workplace and what time is actually you know the proper time that should be billed and therefore paid. <laughs> this is actually hilarious, right? Did you hear that story? Like, um, so the government of India suddenly was like tracking all these pensions and all these people during the pandemic had basically were doing like side hustles. So it's yeah. suddenly like people were showing like, you know, like three entries for like pensions into the system. <laughs> yeah, so. let's, make it, let's make that even more interesting. So. You know, companies in India have, have have found people that have been moonlighting, working two jobs. And what's interesting to say is how many of their customers received a notification from them as they were supplying those resources as contingent workers to say, hey, guess what? We just caught our worker that, you know, was moonlighting and we need to give you a refund for the last six months of service that wasn't performed. Right? So these <laughs> things are actually, you know, happening you know, where people, you know, aren't working. And by the way, people aren't working for several reasons, right? One is because they don't want to. Another one is, you know, the company that's that's contracting for them isn't giving them enough work, right? And so, and other, you know, there's all kinds of other reasons in between, all of which, right, result in a situation in a traditional time card way where a company is going to pay for time that hasn't been worked, right? And, and through the you know, through the platform that we have, we're showing our customers that 30 to 50% of the time, and I'll say it again, 30 to 50% of the time, that, that time hasn't been worked, right? And it's being paid. Wow, this is amazing, right? We're talking about unaccounted work hours here that you're actually uh, dis discovering for overpayment. And you're also figuring out, like, you probably don't need as much headcount as you needed before, right? Uh, this is something interesting. I mean, we're, it's probably going to an exponential, uh, you know, basically looking at our, uh, basically finding like savings in, into like our, a playbook here for, for everyone, right? Yeah, to figure right. out, like, have we overpaid someone? So, yeah, I mean, the, the, the the optimal scenario for everybody, right, for the supplier and for the company that's that's using contingent workers is to have op optimum headcount that meets the capacity requirements of the company, right? Then everybody's busy at the right levels, the work is happening at the right level, the time cards and you know time accounting and, and tracking matches what's truly happening in terms of what Sapiens is collecting through our automated data capture, so that you know there's a nice equilibrium around cost and value. Um, today, that you know that that is you know not happening. At least that's what we're proving to our clients. So on that value side of the equation, um, I mean, when when I look at like contingency workers and just workers in general, like the question, they're always looked as cost because we never figure out the value per se or the returns. Yep. So like. If my just say hypothetically, I my margins on you know said contingent workers 70 percent, then I may not care if I'm overpaying them a little bit. I, I guess does that conversation switch at some point, or I guess how do we even get to that conversation? Yeah, so so there's there's a couple of conversations that happen, Larry. Sometimes when you know people think about their contingent workers, they have in their mind you know what matters to me is outcome, right? 
not right. not just the hours, right, but the outcomes of what people are, are producing. What we would say at Sapiens is outcomes are awesome. We are we are advocates of out, outcomes, but most contingent workforce contracts are not outcome based. They're time based. Companies are buying units of time, right? And if you're contracting for units of time, then that's the record onto which you know time should be captured and time should be paid. If you're engaging a you know a supplier in a you know in a productivity contract like you know, I don't care how many people you have or how many hours you work, I'm going to pay you for producing 100 widgets or 1,000 widgets or whatever the case may be. That's an outcome-based contract. You know, we would say that, um, you know, from a savings perspective, we would say that those are great contracts, but you ought to first start with the baseline of what people are doing. You know, otherwise, what you'll end up when you say, hey, I want an outcome-based contract is your supplier will add up all the people who have historically been working on your account multiply it by the number of hours that you would have thought they're working, however they're not, and generate an, you know, a contract that says it's always been 100 people working full-time. Reality is it's probably 50 to 70 people of full-time work, 100 people working half-time. So getting to a right understanding of capacity requirements and needs for the business is critical, be it a productivity-based outcome contract or a, you know, a time-based contract. You know, I think these are things lots of customers are trying to figure out. Let's talk about customers and what they've achieved, right? And, and give us some examples, right? I mean, you know, of, of the types of savings that you're talking about, maybe the level, the dollar value, yeah. like we're we talking about hundred thousand, millions, or tens of millions. You know, I, I think that will be helpful as, as we learn more about customers and their successes. Yeah, I mean, that's an outstanding question. So let's just take a, you know, a small company would, you know, typically have, let's say a thousand contingent workers. Um, generally speaking, you know, a combination of onshore or offshore, you know, workforce, they're probably paying around $100,000, you know, on average per person, you know, uh, you know, on and offshore. So if you have a thousand workers at $100,000 a piece, you're spending a hundred million on agent workers on an annual basis, right? And that's a small company. If 30 to 50% of the time they're not working, that's 30 to $50 million that's being paid for outcome not achieved, not achieved, right? Time not worked, right? That's also the equivalent of capacity in place not being used, right? Wow. So it's huge. And, and if you take, you know, the, the, I'm talking about a small company. If you take companies, if they have, you know, 10 times that, you're talking about spending a billion, and then you're dealing with 300 to $500 million of capacity that's being paid for for time that hasn't been worked, right? So, you know, again, the optimal outcome is the right capacity hours being worked and paying for that capacity that's being purchased, right? Wow. We're yeah. talking some big numbers. I mean, this is, this is, this should be part of this playbook we're putting together around the year of exponential efficiency. Like we're thinking about all these different ways that we can look at this. So. And you know what, Ray, what's really interesting about all of this is, you know, in, in a business environment, companies spend a lot of money to confirm receipt of goods. Right. And what the most simplistic thing would be, suppose you bought a thousand laptops. When the laptops arrive at the warehouse door, somebody's assigned to walk out and count the laptops on the skids and make sure that a thousand actually received. And if a thousand weren't received, there's a process to go contact the supplier and say, hey, we got, you know, 999, you shorted us one. And there's a process to get it. You know, so that whole process works. If you're buying a load of sand, right, you know, for, to, to replenish your you know, your beach in, in the back of your, you know, your summer home, right? That dump truck's going to be weighed on the way into the place where it picks up sand. It's going to get its load of sand. It's going to be weighed on the way out to make sure that, you know, that, that a full load is understood in terms of what, what you're going to actually pay. What, you, mean, you mean they're skimming on the top? What do you mean? That would never happen with sand. <laughs> I'm, not talking about, I'm not talking about sand skimming. What, what I'm saying is that... No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I mean, yeah, no, it's, it's, so. it's great, though, because everything, you know, everything that companies buy, Right. There's a process to confirm receipt of goods. If you go into a grocery store and you're going to buy a pound of beef, there's a scale there. And then the weight of the scale of that beef points to you as a customer. So you can confirm that the meat they're putting on top, you know, meets the, the scale and weight of, of, of what you're buying. The unique thing about contingent work is the responsibility and the, and the you know, what's happening sits on the supply side. Right? It sits with the butcher. It's the kind of a scale in the butcher shop where you can't see the weight and the butcher puts the, you know, puts the meat on top. And there is no weight that's available to, for you to be seen because the butcher is controlling everything. On the contingent work side, 
The supply side controls everything. The supplier is responsible to provide the time card. The VMS platform that, that's used to, to be the one through the oh, no, that, that's Yeah, the VMS platform gets a cut, a percentage, yep, yep, but actually yep. still. The MSP that's providing the resources that are going to be supplied on the contract, they're getting a cut of what gets billed. So if you're a customer buying these workers, the entire supply side is stacked up in favor of the supplier, right? They provide the time card. They and they, and they, they never round up. So, so yeah, that's you're right. right. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we're here with Sue Watts, president at Sapiens Analytics. More importantly, this is actually an important component of what we're thinking about in our year of exponential efficiency, talking about what you can do, uh, especially looking at that world of contingent work and the enterprise workforce. So thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks, Ray. Thanks, sir. Wow, who would have thought? <laughs> who would have right. thought? People padding margins and padding time cards. And yeah, it's, it's yeah, yeah, so surprising. That would never happen, you know. No, no. Maybe if we were, you had some technocratic forces replacing, you know, reshaping the workforce, but exactly. I don't know. <laughs> those are, those yeah. are so 2022. <laughs> <laughs> we're here with Phil Simon, author of The Nine, The Tectonic Forces Reshaping the Workplace. Phil is a sought-after speaker. I have seen him speak personally and a recognized authority on technology collaboration and the future of work. He advises companies on how to use technology, and his previous books include the award winners Reimagining Collaboration message not received and the age of the platform he's also the author of zoom for dummies and slack for dummies which is actually very useful <laughs> so simon's contributions have appeared everywhere hbr cnn the times wired nbc cnbc business week and many other prominent media outlets he also holds a degree from cmu and cornell university you can follow him on twitter at phil simon we're so happy to have you here man congratulations on your new book thanks a lot guys thanks for having me so oh, I guess I have to ask the first question, and it's got to be about generative AI because that's all anyone's talking about. Um, <laughs> is this empowering workers or replacing them? I know where the fear lies. <laughs> yeah, I'm not hearing a lot of employment. I'm not a lot. I'm not hearing a lot of empowerment out there. Yeah, well, you guys are like me, not spring chickens, so you know that. Technology, the quote was a Joseph Schumpeter back when, I don't know, the century ago, creative destruction. So go back 28 years to the arrival of the commercial web, right? Yep. If you were a travel agent, good luck with that. But hey, it created new jobs like social media expert and website designer and all that other stuff. So you know, there is a lot of uncertainty. It's justifiable. But to answer your question, Larry, it is certainly a force that moves the pendulum a little bit back to employers. Yeah, you know what? That's a great point, right? I mean, these pe the employer is now back in charge. I mean, think about this. Like two years ago, the employers were like, oh my God, we can't find enough people. We got to pay all these folks. We got a job crisis, right? We're paying more for this less. People are just, you know, we got to come up with more amenities. You can work from home. I mean, has that dynamic completely changed? Absolutely not. And I'd argue that the pendulum might have swung back a little bit towards employers. But if you look at the data, as hopefully I did a decent job of doing in this book, a lot of statistics point to the fact that employees feel particularly empowered. Right? Labor union approval, I believe in the US is 70%. It's the highest in 50 years. You've got employees who will quit in mass if forced to go back to the office Monday through Friday, nine to five. In the book, I detail a couple of examples. One is from the state of Virginia, where I think 300 employees immediately resigned when the governor said no more remote work. And then in India, there was a company in which 800 employees said, yeah, screw this, we're out. So that's why I start the book with this first force, employee empowerment. But to be sure, automation, which is kind of a cousin of generative AI, is a force that certainly augurs well for employers. But if you look at even the data just released today on Cinco de Mayo, the US economy, I believe, added 250,000 jobs last um, quarter or last month. And there still is, I believe, 3.4% unemployment. And that doesn't, of course, count folks who have bowed out of the workforce. And with some of the challenges on immigration with the previous administration and COVID, there still is a lack of workers. So I am not willing to say that we have reverted to a pro-employer environment pre-COVID. Um, it just hasn't happened. Wouldn't you say there's a lot of nuance to that in terms of like, you know, it doesn't all shift to employers. 
hundred percent. Some employers will have more leverage than others. Sure. Um, I mean, I just, I just look at like, if you're a trades person, like you're killing it because none of us can do anything. Um, <laughs> I, I just worked myself up to being unhandy. Um, but yeah, I mean, so I guess what industries will be, I guess if you were to like pick a few industries, you know, where is the pendulum swung? Like where are the employees in total control or not total control, but right. you know, where do, where do employees have leverage and where do employers have leverage? If you were to pick out a few industries. There's so many factors. So even if you take a look at historically where automation has hurt blue collar workers and there's the, in the book, there's the example of Fort Worth, Texas and the robot McDonald's. But strangely, if you look at the, a lot of the layoff data, which I'm sure you guys have, it has nope, been nope. at Meta or Amazon or Microsoft, I think, uh, canned 10,000 employees. And those weren't people um, slinging bang, bang chicken like they would at the Cheesecake Factory. So those were white collar workers. <laughs> Interestingly, geography seems to be less of a limiting factor. A couple of years ago, I read that Zillow um, effectively introduced location agnostic pay, which is a fancy way of saying that you got paid the same for the job you did, irrespective of where you work, which flies in the face of a lot of economic orthodoxy. For example, a million years ago when I was in grad school studying labor economics, we learned about compensating wage differentials, which is a fancy way of saying that certain jobs pay more than other jobs based on different factors. So if you're a coal miner, you could die. You're going to make more money than if you're a school teacher, which you know, hopefully you're not going to die. If you live in San Francisco or New York, it's more expensive than if you live in Gilbert, Arizona, where I do. So it's really tough, Larry, to parcel it out. But one of the um, most powerful forces is, is number two, and that's dispersion. So it's historically, if you did want to relocate, you'd have to move your family. You'd have to find a new home. Companies would have yep. to deal with relocation costs to the extent that tools like Slack, Microsoft Teams, Zoom, et cetera, have really made remote work over the last three years a lot more plausible. I don't necessarily have to relocate my family. You do hear about people who will fly in once a month or make a two-hour drive and stay at a hotel and work from home the rest. So there, when I wrote the book, I was really fascinated about the interdependence of all these different forces. I agree with your assessment. There's a lot of nuance here. That's why right on the back of the book, it reads, this is not a tactical book. <laughs> but hey, you're saying, look, we're not going to go back to 2019. And half the managers in the world are saying, hey, we are coming back to 2019 no matter what you think. Right. I mean, one of those is like, hey, we're all going to go back to the workforce for five days out of the week. I mean, what's the likelihood of that? Like, is that are we even close? Will we get there? Or no, this it's is just a pipe dream? There was a statistic that I came across about a year ago when I wrote my book on hybrid project management, something like, according to Sherm, 72% of managers want employees back full time in the office. And it's understandable. It's a trust issue, right? What do these folks do? In part, they're watching people work. And some of it's kind of fraternity hazing, right? I got my ass spanked, so you have to get yours, right? even though it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, yeah, you're going to have your Elon Musk's and your Jamie Dimon's say we want everyone back. And maybe in the short term, employees have to comply. But long term, they're going to be looking. Here's another cool statistic from about a year ago. LinkedIn at the time claimed that 15, 1.5% of the job postings were fully remote. Guess what percentage of applicants they uh, attracted? I don't know. 55-0. So there's okay. this asymmetry. And, and all this the data supports the notion that employees have been as, if not more productive, working from home. So if COVID, as I'm fond of saying, had been a snow day, two weeks, couple of days, all right, back to work. But it hasn't been the case. We've been as productive and we really asked ourselves during the pandemic some big, hairy questions. So do I think that it's reasonable to expect everyone to come back to the office Monday through Friday, nine to five? I don't. I think that's equally unreasonable, though, to say I'm never coming into the office because work needs to be more purposeful. There's the example in the book about how Cisco's Manhattan office pre-pandemic allocated 70% of its space to individual workstations, cubes, desks, whatever. They inverted it, right? They even did things like purchased triangular conference tables because if I'm looking at you and the Zoom room or whatever hardware, probably Cisco if it's Zoom, is at the beginning of the room, and it's a rectangular table, then everyone has to go like this. Well, that's not really reasonable. There's not what they call digital <laughs> equality. But by making it a triangle, 
you're just looking like this, like you were, were in person. So too many companies, I think, have spent too much money and recognize the benefits of being able to attract people from wherever they are across the globe. And certainly the collaboration technologies have advanced so much uh, more than when you and I started working with, I'm sure, IRC back in 1998. Right. Hey, I just want to jump in real quick. Sorry, Larry. I, I, I was going to yeah. say, look, I mean, if you're doing, I mean, for Cisco, WebEx, right? Not Zoom. But if you're, if you're in that kind of environment, I think about my son, right? He's doing these internships and they're remote. Right. There's no one to mentor. You can't have that conversation in the hallway. You can't wait for the boss to just jump in. You're not in the room when the action happened. I mean, I feel like we're losing a whole generation of transfer of knowledge. I'm just playing. I'm just playing that view for you. But go ahead. <laughs> so, how do you react to that? It's 100 percent true. And you have to think about younger people not having developed the social capital. If you let's say the three of us work together for five years before the pandemic and you don't see me for a couple of weeks or a couple of months. All right. That's just a big deal. Big deal. Yeah, right. Big exactly. Deal. But if let's just say you guys hired me during the pandemic and you kind of had some questions about me. Let's not forget proximity bias. Um, Future Forum, which up until recently was part of Salesforce, I think they shuttered it a couple of weeks ago. Yep, um, did yep, some yep. really interesting research. And I want to say that 35, 38% of managers' top concerns was proximity bias. The very notion that despite the fact that I'm working really hard, I'm doing it remotely and you can't see me versus someone who shows up in the office for FaceTime, takes two-hour lunches and frequent cigarette breaks. Oh, yeah, that's we know Phil. He's working really hard because he's here. So there are legitimate problems. But to me, it's kind of like saying, all right, um, we've got um, ants. I'm going to take out a nail and start to hammer them. That's not the most effective way to solve the problem. There are massive benefits, including being able to attract the best employees and retain them of embracing remote and hybrid work. So I, I don't see how we're going back. In fact, there was a LinkedIn stat I saw a couple of weeks ago from the UK. Three out of four workers said they would quit if forced to return to the office full time. Wow, that's a huge stat. <laughs> Yeah, I think have have you? I mean, I kind of look at this well a couple of ways. One, one, I'm just following the money. Like, where are the commercial leases going? And good point. What I can tell, a lot of them are falling off the books. Oh, 100 percent. Did you see the statistics? It, uh, prior crazy. to the pandemic, um, there's a chart that I um, we worked a little bit with the data from Rami Mala from Recode or Vox. I think it's Vox. Um, who does some really good work around the future of work. And uh, from about six, seven months ago, um, air travel was at 98% of pre-COVID capacity, comedy clubs, restaurants, sporting events. I'm watching the NBA playoffs right now, and there aren't too many empty seats. But office, <laughs> office was only about 48, 49% nationwide. So in chapter nine of the book, Fractions, I discuss how fractional real estate and in fact, fractional employment are two forces that we're really going to see increasing. There was a good Bloomberg piece I saw two or three months ago about- Wait, wait, wait Phil, Phil, they're, they're all at the games because Sue's software is not working, right? <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're all playing hooky. <laughs> It should be producing something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it, I mean, it, you can poo-poo remote and hybrid work if you like, but there are massive advantages financially. I mean, if you, maybe you don't need an entire building or entire floor. No, there are startups in don't. San Francisco who are saying, all right, let's figure out our co-working arrangements, but let's say it's almost like shared custody. So you get the kid every other weekend. Maybe you get the office every other week. So there's massive- Or the intern, or the intern. <laughs> Right. There's massive opportunities for companies to steer into the skid and embrace these forces. And if you pretend that they don't matter, they're not going to affect you. I'm not betting that your company will be around in five years. Have you yeah. tracked, did you do any like research on, I mean, because companies, they, they all say, okay, we want you back in the office, but it depends on your manager and your team. And most managers and team, most, you know, a lot of managers don't want to come in either all the time. So is you see that as a hedge as to you know sort of a quietly codifying the hybrid sort of approach you look it varies right if you look at the startups the ones that have been using slack for five or six years even slack right when covid hit they were virtually unaffected a companies like basecamp which have been remote since their inception automatic the company behind wordpress so there's absolutely a familiarity factor if you're coding all day long why are you commuting an hour and a half if you're getting on zoom calls all day long why do you need to be in an office do I understand it more in manufacturing environments or banking? Sure, because of the sort of culture there. But yeah, it's 
I, I, going back to your previous point, Larry, there is a lot of nuance there. I can't say that if you, you always need to come in three days a week if you work in healthcare, but you should never come in more than two if you work in consumer packaging. I mean, it, there, there are these guiding forces, but I expect with the book and the, 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 the talks that I give and the consulting and the workshops to help companies really find the best solution for them. But these forces affect all companies in all industries. Yeah, no, this is very, very powerful. You know, I, I think, you know, like Constellation, we started out virtual on day one, right? The the only problem with everybody working from home was just that during COVID, everybody was home, right? There's nowhere to go eat. It was kind of, you know, chaotic. Uh, but but there is some, some, there's a lot of conversation about like, what does this mean? Because if you can work from home, is your job going to be replaced, right? Especially with automation and back to Larry's first question around chat GPT, because like, you know what? You're not going to be there. Fine. We'll just digitize it, right? You know, oh, we'll automate it, right? So, so how, sure. do, how do we balance that out in the overall conversation? I wish there were as simple as finding a formula, but you know, the, the changes that are taking place, you could argue, are certainly there pre-COVID, right? It's not like no one ever worked remotely in 2018. And the pandemic intensified forces that were already in effect, right? Clearly, there was inflation pre-pandemic, but it was 2, 2.2%, certainly wasn't 6 or 7%. Uh, clearly, there were things like e-commerce. Clearly, we streamed movies. But during the pandemic, I believe Netflix for the first time cracked 1 billion hours in a single day for streaming. So yeah, the pandemic intensified a lot of these trends, but ignoring them or pretending that you can turn back the clock, I think, is a fool's errand. Last question, just to crowbar that one in there. Um, what would you tell a student entering the workforce or whether somebody going into university now, which everything's oh, yeah. going to change in two years, it's pretty much guaranteed. Um, <laughs> or what would you tell that, you know, junior, senior graduating, you know, a university today? Yeah, there's a great stat I read, I think it was from McKinsey two or three months ago about how a decade ago, the half-life of a skill was, don't quote me on this, seven or eight years, and now it's 3.5. So you need to learn how to learn. I, I don't think that general use programming languages like Python and, and JavaScript are going to go away anytime soon, never mind enterprise resource planning or customer relationship management systems. But are you comfortable dealing with ambiguity? Are you comfortable learning new skills? And as for the generative AI, AI tools that are taking the world by storm, it would be foolish not to know how to use them. But if you can only use them and don't know how to roll up your sleeves and write code if you're a computer science major, good luck with that. I heard a story fairly recently about how someone was clearly doing that in a virtual interview. And once they got wind of it, they just stopped the interview, right? It's one thing if you want a, an automatic paired program or what Microsoft was called a cobalt, that, that's great. But can you look under the hood and see why something is failing? Because if you can only use that tool to generate code and you can't interpret it or create your own code, then if I'm a manager, why can't I just do that myself? So I guess you have no choice to answer your question, Larry. You need to lean into the uncertainty and steer into the skid. But pretending that you're going to graduate college as a digital marketer, and that's what you're going to be for the next 45 years. I mean, I'm probably on my sixth or seventh career. Right. <laughs> I think we all are, actually. <laughs> We're still trying to, I'm still trying to figure out what I'm going to be when I grow up. So uh, that's, that's a whole other story. <laughs> so, Phil, this is excellent. Congratulations. I believe the book came out April 3rd. Uh, this is, you know, part of a series of amazing thought leadership that you have around the future of work. We're here with Phil Simon, author of The Nine, The Technotic Forces That Are Reshaping the Workplace. This is the future of work. Thank you so much for being on the show, and we'll see you in the green room. So happy Bye. Friday. Enjoyed it. Thanks, Phil. Wow, Larry. This is well, incredible. I had to ask the student <laughs> question because I'm thinking about that all the time because you're talking to students and, you know, helping them figure out internships and stuff. And you're just kind of like, eh, there's a can of whoop ass out there. I'm just not sure if it's good <laughs> or bad yet. Well, hey, you know, this has been wonderful. I mean, we, we started out the day, uh, the hour talking about what's happening with money and value exchange, central part of what's actually happening in the world today. Uh, and it really has impact as to how we view, you know, value exchange. And then we started talking about what that value exchange looks like inside organizations, because it is the year of exponential efficiency. And we're definitely seeing that as people are trying to figure out where they can find uh, new opportunities in their playbook. But more importantly, right? Work is changing, right? So, so we're hitting on some of these big examples. Any trends that you saw here? Anything that you'd like to pull out of our conversation today? I, I think the, the conversation on the hybrid workplace not exactly disappearing, which I think is very true. Um, 
that stuck out. I think the you know usage of time as an employment metric to me. I mean, I know you got to do, use something, but I would love to see that conversation turn to returns. Like, if I got better returns off a worker who spent half the time, what do I care? Because I'm getting returns. Um, Interesting. And then the whole money conversation. It, it's just sort of where where is crypto? Is it is it the disruptor or just a step onto something else? I'm kind of thinking it's a step. Oh, hey, this has been awesome co-hosting with you. Next week, uh, it's episode 322. We've got Dirk Luth, CEO and co-founder of Uplammy, one of the biggest metaverse worlds. Andrew Wolf, co-CEO of Bloomfilter, a BT150 alum, along with Eric Severinghaus, co-CEO and co-founder of Bloomfilter. They're both going to be on the show. And of course, Jenna Fisher, author of To the Top, an amazing book that we're going to be going deeper into. So if it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Thanks a lot for being my co-host, Larry. And of course, Anytime. next week, Bala Afshar will return. So thanks, everybody. Happy Friday. Ciao.